Welcome back to the Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley, your hostess and creator of the show. I was spring skiing when I severed my ACL. Oof, what a bad memory. I still eventually need to get surgery. Anyway, when I heard my knee pop, I was able to communicate down to my partner because I had my Rocky Talkie radio clipped right on the shoulder strap of my pack. I held the transceive button and radioed down. I injured my knee. I partnered with Rocky Talkie for a reason. These radios are lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold. They have impressive battery life and solid range. I use mine on every single backcountry adventure from rock climbing, hiking, backcountry skiing and snow machining, even on road trips. If you like discounts, get 10% off your radios with code SHARPEND at rockytalkie.com. The next three episodes of this podcast are also supported by Sterling Ropes. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zeros technology. Zeros is a whole new way to manufacture UI AA certified dry rope that's more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use code SHARPEND for 15% off. This show is also supported by the American Alpine Club. Just last month in March, on my birthday weekend, I flew to Colorado for the American Alpine Club's annual benefit gala. I had the honor of sitting with Adam Campbell at the American Alpine Club's event to hear about the avalanche that took his best friend and partner. I'd been following both Adam and Laura on social media for years before this incident. Their adventures, their love, their shared passion for pushing each other in the mountains and the support they seem to give each other the entire way. I fell in love with them as a couple all the way from Alaska. They were perfect. And when I learned about this incident, my own heart broke a little from hearing the world lost Laura and that Adam lost his best friend. I asked Adam if he'd be willing to share this story. He agreed. And the American Alpine Club let me sit with him live at the American Alpine Club's gala during the 10 o'clock a.m. Saturday sessions. This recording was live and I hope you enjoy. So I guess uh, we can take it back. So um, Laura and I lived in Canmore, Alberta. I recently moved to, to Squamish. Um, I was finding Canmore was just feeling a little bit, uh, there's just a few too many ghosts and it was just feeling a little oppressive and I just needed a change of scenery. Despite having a really strong community of friends there, it was, um, I needed the shift. But Laura and I um, actually met in Calgary. So Laura was doing her residency in anesthesia in Calgary when we first met. And um, funny story about how we met, uh, I actually saw her on an online dating site. And I was like, oh, this girl's quite attractive. And I sent her a note and she ignored me. <laughs> so <laughs> I did a little bit of creeping and found out we had some friends in common. <laughs> and so I reached out to my friends and I was like, hey, can you, somebody just uh, you know, give a friend a solid here <laughs> and let her know I'm a pretty decent guy. And they're like, actually, yeah, you guys probably have quite a bit in common. And did an intro and um, you know, we met for a beer and she was just coming off a 30 hour shift and almost bailed on the beer and luckily she didn't and one beer turned into two and turned into us getting married uh, six years later. So it was, it was uh, I'm, I'm glad a, a, uh, you know, one went on the online dating site and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> modern love and that mm-hmm. uh, I then followed through on it. Um, and so Laura uh, grew up in Kamloops, British Columbia and she grew up as doing um, competition climbing as a young girl. Her dad was a, was a climber and a fly fisherman and a marine biologist. And also he wrote uh, f- uh, fiction novels, which is kind of cool as a, as a side hobby. And she, was, uh, she also played hockey. She was a member of the UBC, uh, University of British Columbia women's hockey team the assistant captain, so she'd always joke, but she was an athlete and I exercised a lot. <laughs> and she wasn't wrong, you know. Um, but we just, we had this shared love of the mountains. And, you know, like one of our second days, we went a little skinning up one of the local ski resorts. And uh, from there we started climbing and we, uh, we actually tried to repeat a bunch of her father's roots. Um, you know, he did all the classics in the Canadian Rockies and uh, he'd passed away um, prior to me meeting him. So I, I never got a chance to meet him, but we found his old climbing logbooks since we were trying to repeat the roots and on our you know within a few months of um, dating we actually went to go climb uh, Mount Sir Donald which is a famous like five four five five beautiful ridge line and 
Rogers Pass, and as we're going up there, as we're driving to it, she's like, yeah, my father lost his finger on this route. <laughs> a rock fell off and crushed his finger. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a funny thing. It's kind of, kind of a harsh thing to be telling you right before we're about to go on this route. But it had a lot of significance to her, and so it was really cool to go and go to these special, beautiful places. Like, we climbed Mount Assiniboine and, um, you know, a bunch of the other classic 11,000-foot peaks in the Canadian Rockies. The 11,000-foot peaks are, they're kind of the Canadian Rockies equivalents of the 14ers, just more glaciated and sometimes a little bit sketchier to get, to get up to, but there's often easier routes up them, and so we take most of the easy kind of alpine routes. And um, fortunately, we got to travel the world together as well. She, um, she switched from anesthesia into family medicine. Uh, she want, we both wanted to live in a smaller community, and she couldn't do that in um, being based in, uh, no, sorry, she, she, we were gonna end up being in, in Calgary, and we'd re we wanted to be in Canmore. And so she switched into family medicine, which allowed her to start a practice there. And we, we loved it. It was a wonderful place to be. Like, uh, Canmore is in the heart of the Canadian Rockies, uh, surrounded by beautiful, uh, beautiful peaks all around. And, you know, it's world-renowned as a nice climbing destination, but it has wonderful trails for hiking, and incredible sport climbing and um, wonderful backcountry skiing. But it is a Canadian Rockies, and so the snowpack can be a little bit variable at times. Um, and so we did a lot of backcountry skiing together in the winters and um, a lot of ski mountaineering in the spring. And so in uh, um, early January of 2020, um, we, we, we were going to meet up with a friend, um, Kevin Hurchis. And Kevin is a, is a well-known ski guide. He used to be on the Freeride World Tour. And he, um, he's sort of pioneering sort of steeper ski guiding in the Canadian Rockies and sort of taking people out, teaching them how to ascend couloirs properly and ski steeper lines. And so it's a, and he's just a wonderful, um, you know, I was just, we were out for a recreational day, uh, but I was also just looking forward to learning um, a little bit more about how to move in the mountains and more technical terrain from him. And he's just a beautiful skier as well. So anytime you get a chance to, to ski with something like that, you, you take the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it was a really, really cold morning, um, like maybe minus 15, minus 18 Celsius, um, with high winds in the Alpine. And it was a considerable, um, you know, sort of, I think it was considerable, considerable, moderate um, avalanche forecast. So, you know, considerable in the Alpine and a tree line and then moderate below tree line, but really high winds. And so we, we kind of, you know, met early in the morning. Actually, Laura did her rounds at the hospital and I went and picked her up and she got changed at the hospital, threw on her, took off her gowns and threw on her ski gear. Wow, she's a charger. Oh, she really yeah. was. Yeah, no, really, really was. It was super inspiring. She just, she loved, loved, loved backcountry skiing. Uh, I think that was probably her favorite of all the mountain activities. And um, we, we settled to go ski this, this new area to us called the uh, Apollo Bowl at the base of Mount Hector. Mount Hector is one of the 11,000 foot peaks. And had your, had your ski guide friend skied there before? He hadn't either. No, so we were both wanting to go assess it. And you know, it looked like it was sort of manageable terrain. At, you know, he could punch up to tree line, but along like a fairly easy access ridge. And then there's nice tree skiing below it. Um, and it snowed a lot. You know, there was 20 to 30 centimeters of fresh snow. So we were expecting just fun skiing. Like, we knew it was going to be touchy avalanche conditions, but we thought we could manage it. And the, and the weather? It was windy, but was it clear? Was it snowing? No, it was, it was snowing. It was really overcast that day as well, um, quite, quite chilly. Um, and so we drove up to the Icefields Parkway. And the Icefields Parkway, one of the, you know, the great highways in, the, in North America, probably, if not the world, and sort of how you access a lot of these, these routes. But it's, you know, it was midweek, um, and so we was, it was really quiet. You know, we were the only ones parked along the side of the road. And we start skinning up through the forest, and you know we're having a great time. And um, I think Kevin was enjoying not guiding for a day. You know he was actually able to move at a bit of a faster pace, which sort of how Laura and I like to move in the mountains. And um, so we we ascend the ridge, and we we start out on one aspect, and you know we saw a few little um, pockets that we didn't like. Um, so we moved over, we changed aspects, and uh, we we had a, we were having a wonderful day skiing. It was really fun, um, and so we moved our way to this this ridge line, and there was a series of sort of little old avalanche chutes. Um, so you could we we started skiing them sort of, you know, skiers left to right. Um, so we skied the first chute, had a great run. We already had a skin track in, so we were starting to lap it, just slowly moving our way across, and just enjoying fresh tracks in this you know boot deep pow. And um, you know, how many runs do you have at this point? Uh, we probably skied three or four runs, and they're about 300 meters, so like 1,200 feet, 400 meter runs. So you know, like decent, decent runs, and basically just like you know, sort of skiing along the 
um, along his shoulders trying to trying to work the aspects a little bit, sort of staying out of anything that looked too loaded on the day. And just to give a bit of a bit of context as well, I mean, I mean, Kevin is is a ski guide, so has like really really deep experience. Uh, Laura and I had you know the highest level of recreational avalanche training you can have. Um, I've done operations um, like sort of basic operations level avalanche training. I was on the board of directors of Avalanche Canada at the time, and you know we you know we'd already even though it was January we probably already skied you know 30 or 40 days that year starting in October. So we had a lot of local knowledge of the snowpack and what was going on, and his sort of kind of obsessively look at the weather throughout the winter, just sort of trying to stay on top of what's going like on tracking and tracking it. things, yeah. And I'm sure you guys were talking about it all day. Like, okay, you know, you noticed some pockets that you didn't like, so we're like, okay, we're gonna move from here to go to this other zone. And so you're probably talking about the conditions and the snowpack all day. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we were also just talking about how much fun we were having mm -hmm. as well. I mean, that's sort of, you know, part of powder skiing. It's, it's just fun, you know, like it's a wonderful feeling. You get to float through, it's basically as close to flying as you can get in, on a good powder day, especially, in that, uh, you know, Rocky's powder, it's really light and fluffy, and, but it, it was cold, um, you know, so this slow, this, this snow isn't moving quite as fast as well. Um, but uh, Kevin had to get back to pick his daughter up from, um, from school, and, you know, in January in the Rockies, it's, it starts to get dark around, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock, so, you know, we were, it was around 1 p.m., and we sort of had our fill for the day, and it was really, really cold and windy on the ridge, and um, the storm was definitely starting to, to pick up a little bit, and, um, so we, as I said, we were skiing, uh, you know, left to right along this ridge line, and we made our way over to the final ridge. And uh, there was a creek at the bottom of it, and we sort of like we identified that as a possible train trap, and we pointed out a little tree triangle at the base we were going to meet at. It was slightly elevated, and um, we gave Laura first first tracks. We we're like, you know, have at it. Um, you know, it's in backcountry skiing. It's kind of like the greatest honor to give somebody first tracks. They get to paint their line down this uh, this wonderful canvas, and you know, I, I remember. I don't actually remember the last thing I said to her, which is um, something I kind of wrestle with. But what can you do? Um, it was probably have fun. Um, and uh, I watched her rip down this line and was having a great time, sort of floating her way down. And she moved into the um, moved over into the tree triangle as we identified. And we were skiing one at a time. Um, and then Kevin skied next. And um, you know, he dropped in. He kind of like aired into this thing a little bit. Um, he skied a little bit farther right than Laura did. And same thing, I just, you know, and so as Kevin dropped in, I moved forward to watch Kevin uh, ski the line, and I was um, skiers left of where they are. Um, and I was maybe 80 feet across, and as I moved forward, I, all of a sudden, I just um, heard the ground settle, uh, or the snow settle beneath my feet. And I heard this huge crack, and all of a sudden I realized I started, I was sliding down you were, you were sliding down. I started sliding down, and I self-arrested on my ski poles. Um, so I'm, I must have triggered, uh, I was, it, it was a small convex roll, um, and I must have triggered a little wind-loaded pocket, and I watched the entire 80-meter um, um, sort of little bowl that we were in uh, rip. And from, there, from where you were to their ski tracks? Yeah, over to the to their ski tracks, exactly, yeah. Um, so I, I watched it at um, Avalanche, and it, it went really, really quite big. Um, so I'm self-arrested on my poles, and I just start yelling Avalanche, but they're three or 400 meters down the run, so they couldn't hear me. Um, and so I, I watched this thing rip down the 300-meter the chute, and all of a sudden I see this huge powder cloud, and the second that I see that settle, I quickly make my way up, um, and I'd already ripped my skins at this point, and so I slide over to the next rib across so I wouldn't trigger anything else on top of them in case there was any kind of hang fire. And I made my way down as, as quickly and as safely as possible. And uh, when I get to Kevin, um, so Kevin was above, and I see Kevin, and I'm like, um, you know, like I saw Laura going to the trees, just start yelling her name, um, and we, neither one of us thought, anything too much of it, and so we start yelling, Laura, Laura, and... Uh, but, Ke but Kevin was fine, he was out of... Kevin was fine, yeah. And was yeah. standing. Kevin, yeah, Kevin was standing, he was um, sort of on this ridge, like this little rib that I was uh, skiing down, and so we start yelling her name, and we don't get a response, so we instantly realize that, um, you know, something something's up, um, so we, we each pull out our, our avalanche transfers, we had full AV gear with us, you know, Beacon shovels, probes, and everything. 
Um, and like, you know, like proper probes, like 320 meter probes or 340, sorry, 320 centimeter probes. Um, and, uh, you know, we start doing this, uh, we start doing our beacon search and we start getting drawn into this creek bed um, with, and so, and it, it's quite a complicated search because there was a lot of debris and it was quite, it, the, um, the creek bed was quite steep um, where it was. And there's, there's a lot of debris in this, in this creek bed. And uh, so we start going across and Kevin's just below me and the, you know, our readings are, you know, we're getting 15 meters, 12 meters, 10 meters. And finally we settle on four meters because um, that was the smallest you could go. That was the smallest reading we got. And instantly, uh, I knew that this was a really, really bad situation. And um, I had a, a little inReach on me. There's no cell signal uh, there. And so I deploy the, the SOS button on the inReach and grab my um, shovel and probe. And uh, we start probing, but at four meters, we're not, we're not able to get any kind of a probe strike. So we have to clear a bunch of snow, start probing again. And uh, finally, we you know we, we get a probe strike, um, and this whole time I'm, you know, I'm on the verge of losing it. Um, you know, really just doing everything I can to tr try to keep it together. And Kevin was doing a really admirable job at giving me tasks to keep me focused. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm really really thankful he did. Um, you know, he you know we, we'd all practice these scenarios, but. Um, trying to move that amount of snow. It's a lot of snow. Um, and, you know, just sort of due to the nature of the terrain that we were on, we had to start sort of shoveling from about 10 meters back, so about 30 feet back, to be able to tunnel in. And, um, you know, if it took us about 45 minutes uh, to actually get to Laura. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. And I remember at one point even thinking, I'm getting tired and just really like, Start, I was yelling at myself. Just, I got so angry at myself for allowing that thought to, to cross my mind. The, the thought of being tired. The thought of being tired, yeah. Um, and uh, after 45 minutes, we, we finally get to, we get to Laura. And um, when, when we get to Laura, I mean, her, her, her face was downhill. Um, and uh, she was really blue. And uh, I just remember... Um, her her left hand her her ring hand um, was out of the snow, and I could see her ring finger. Sorry, um. Um, and so I just remember seeing um, her her ring ring in her hand, and she just looked really cold, and she hated being cold. And I remember just being really sad at how how cold she looked. And um, Kevin went up to her and uh, cleared the snow from her from her mouth. And uh, you know, went and tried to feel a pulse. And um, he lied to me and said that he could feel one. And uh, to give you hope. To give me hope, yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, so at this point, she'd been buried for forty-five minutes um, and, and was really blue. Um, but you know, she, but her body was still um, up upslope, and so Kevin went and um, you know sent sent a, a more detailed message uh, on the inreach, just saying you know this is a, this is a really bad situation. We need help now, um, and uh, and I, I I stayed with her and, and kept trying to to dig her out, um, and it took us another forty five minutes to actually uh, be able to fully uncover her. Um, and uh, when, when we finally got to her, uh, you know, we were able to release her skis and um, she had a, a, remember there was just like a, a slice on her leg um, and to get her out. Was there blood on, the, on her leg? Just, just a little bit, but not, not much, no. Um, and uh, when the only way I could get her out was I had to drag her body up slope. Like, so I would lay uh, behind her and pull her up because, you know, we had to pull her up this 10 meter ramp and um, yeah, it was just, it was a lot of work. Um, and you know, she, she was limp. And uh, so we finally, finally um, get her out of this, you know, like snow tomb. And uh, you know, I pull out the emergency space blanket I had in my pack and every warm bit of clothes I had and put it on her. And um, I just stayed with her. And Kevin performed a few rounds of CPR 
uh, but there was there's no response. Um, and you know, I, at this point, I thought she was she was dead. Um, and uh, you know, with you know, maybe another 20 minutes later, the helicopter uh, came in with the with the BAMP search and rescue crew. And um, you know, I, I know all the members of the search and rescue crew, and, and so did Kevin. And uh, I just will never f forget the look on the face of um, one of the star guys when he saw saw us, and he was like, "Hi, Adam." And it was just, that really, um, once again, just kind of broke me a little bit, just like the sadness I could hear in his voice. And um, it was pretty obvious it was a bad situation. And um, so they, they packaged Laura and flew her to the highway. And then they came back. And th to this point, I hadn't really screamed or anything. You know, I was still, I was in shock. And you know, I tried to keep it together the best I could. And then um, when they came back and uh, airlifted uh, Kevin and me out of there. Uh, that's when I just I just collapsed. Um, I just started screaming um, and shouting <sighs> under the helicopter um, until they dropped us down at the at our car on the highway and the uh, you know the the RCMP and the ambulance stopped the traffic and so you could see this line of cars on either side and get to the car and it just you know, fell to my knees just. Um, you know, just absolutely destroyed. Um, and that there was uh, a victim services member from the uh, the local RCMP detachment who took Kevin and me to, to Lake Louise, uh, the, the closest town, which is maybe 20 or 30 minutes away, and uh, brought us into this room. And um, Kevin, um, just like, just, just take this time, just take a minute here, because uh, life's about to get pretty pretty crazy, so just, you know, drink some water, um, just take some breaths, and, you know, we'll deal with life in a minute, but just sort of settle, and I, I appreciated that, um, him doing that at the time, and, I mean, his life was also pretty rocked, I mean, here he was out for a casual ski day, you know, we, we knew each other, but we were acquaintances, we weren't, like, really, really good friends, and, um, all, you know, we were sort of working towards, like, a, a ski relationship, and, um, all of a sudden, you know, like our, our, our lives are just going to be changed forever. Um, and uh, one of the RCMP, or I don't remember who it was, but somebody came in the room and said that Laura had been taken to Foothills Hospital in Calgary. And uh, in my mind, I was like, oh, well, that, that means that there might be a chance. She might, they might have uh, been able to resuscitate her or something. So I, I called a friend uh, in Canmore, um, Andy Reid, who's a, a, a family doc there, a guy I do lots of stuff in the mountains with as well, and uh, I was like, I need a ride to um, to Calgary, something really bad's happened. And so we got driven to, to Canmore, and um, along the way I, I called Laura's brother, who lives in Vancouver, um, and Laura's mom, um, who had the same kind of adventurous spirit as, as Laura, had just gotten on a flight to Columbia to go do a trip with a, a bunch of uh, women that she, she travels around the world with. And so I wasn't able to reach her, um, but calling Laura's brother was one of the shittiest things I've ever had to do. Um, and just say that, you know, he's like, what's happened? Is she alive? Is she okay? And I was like, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's bad. You need to get here now. Um, so he got on a flight from Vancouver to Calgary and we drove the, you know, two and a half hours to the hospital. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that was a pretty quiet, like devastating car ride. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you know, and, uh, the sun was starting to set at this point. It was um, like early evening, and when when we get to the hospital, um, the the doctor there um, and Laura had worked at this hospital in her residency. Um, you know, the, the doctor came up to us and was like, "Well, we found a faint pulse, uh, but we don't know whether or not her." Um, She's got a lot of internal trauma. We don't want to present any brain activity, but we have a pulse, and so we're gonna, you know, they they were slowly trying to warm her throughout the day. And you know, one thing that um, you know I, I, I do know is that there are cases of people who survived uh, prolonged hypothermia, and it, it can actually preserve a body. It's very very rare. You know, like after somebody's been buried for more than 15 minutes, it's um, you know your odds of survival statistically are, are go way down. But there was hope, and um, you know, so it, and you cling to any bit of hope you have. And so we had hope. And, um, you know, word started to get out uh, about uh, this and so more and more of Laura's 
um, you know, close family and friends who were in the area came to the hospital. And luckily, um, the hospital staff were really, uh, really gracious and had a, a lot of empathy. And they um, allowed us all into into Laura. It wasn't you know we, we were in a, a communal a communal ward in the, the trauma center, but it wasn't um, you know it, it wasn't a, a private room. Um, but they allowed all her friends and family to come and sort of sit around her, and we all sat with her and talked to her and held her and caressed her and just told her how much we loved her and. Um, you know, at this point, uh, Laura's mom had landed in in Colombia, and it was it was really late, um, late there. And I speak a little bit of Spanish, and so we we found the hostel, or sorry, the uh, the hotel that she was at. And I, um, I so I, I spoke to the the receptionist. I was like, "You need to wake them up um, and let her know that this horrible things happened." And uh, um, I think Laura's brother had booked a plane, a flight back for her right away, and. Uh, so we, we called her, um, you know, and said, you have to get on a flight right now. Um, Laura, Laura's in a bad way, and um, we, we don't know whether or not she's going to survive, but you need to come home. And so she got on the flight, and, um, you know, around 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, the, the doctor came in, and it was, uh, she was a, a young resident, um, and her words were, uh, you know, Laura's bowels have died, and uh, I'll never forget it. They're like, that's incompatible with life, um, which is a really funny way of saying your wife's about to die. Um, so I'll never, yeah. Um, you know, th this this poor young, you know, woman having to tell tell this to us, you could tell sort of the, how hard that was in her as well. Um, and so when they said that, you know, we all kind of had our own reactions, um, you know, from screaming to crying to, um, but we ultimately just went out and sat with Laura and uh, just tried to give her, just surround her with love and sort of give her the most dignity possible. Um, you know, because Laura was in the medical field, we would actually talk quite a lot about dignity and dying and sort of giving people, um, you know, a beautiful death. There's a lot of sort of medicalization of death. And uh, I knew that that's something that Laura wouldn't have wanted anyway, um, to sort of be prolonged uh, just for the sake of keeping somebody alive. It, it wasn't sort of where her, her ethics or philosophy were. Um, so we sat with Laura um, through the night and into the morning. And, um, you know, they, they said that she would probably die within a couple hours. Um, and Laura's mom was still flying in. And, um, but Laura's heart, um, you know, she had a huge heart and it, uh, it kept beating. Um, and so we were watching the monitor. I don't know if she had any brain activity, um, but you know, it, like, you know, and I, I don't know how much of the stuff you create, but you could feel little moments. You'd tell her something, you'd kind of feel, but she would squeeze her. You could almost feel like a, a presence or a response of some sort from her. And, uh, so I just kept telling her he loved her, and um, you know I also told her it was okay. Um, I'm telling her that it's okay, but she had to go. Um, but I understood that I would be okay. Yeah. Um, so Laura's heart kept beating throughout the day. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, and uh, but you could you could see it fading, um, and Laura's mom's flight had delayed. Yeah, it was delayed landing, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we were we were tracking the flight online, and it just felt important for Laura's mom to be able to speak to Laura. They they had a really really tight bond, especially since Laura's dad had died. Um, you know, they, they did. They hiked the Camino together in um, in northern Spain after he died, and uh, you know they traveled quite a bit, and they were they were really close. And uh, uh, he'd actually died while uh, Laura and her mom and brother were in South Africa, um, so they hadn't really been able to say goodbye either. He died quite suddenly, um, so it, it felt really important for Laura's mom to be able to say goodbye. And uh, as, as her flight was, was landing, um, all of a sudden the EKG um, really started to fade. You know, it's like 
15 beats a minute kind of thing. And so it was really starting to drop. And so I start yelling, like, call Becky, call Becky, uh, even though she was in the air. Because you wanted her mom to show up and see that heartbeat. Or just to be able to speak to her. Um, and so luckily Laura's mom answered the call. And uh, she, and so we put the phone up to Laura's ear. And uh, Becky was able to say goodbye. Um, you love you. Uh, she did that. Uh, her heart stopped beating and she was declared dead. Yeah. Um, it's like she was waiting to yeah, hear I mean, her mom. You know, I, I don't know how much we, you know, uh, how much we see any of these things, but it certainly felt like it. And, um, you know, it, 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 it did feel, it did feel that way. And it would be very much in character with Laura that uh, she would have the strength and the sort of determination to do that. And also the empathy for her mom, um, caring for her mom to be able to hold on, to be able to give her that as well. Because I think it would be very hard. I mean, it's not, it's not, not that any of this is easy. Um, but I think it, it gave her, her mom a final gift as well. And, um, as I said, I'd be very, very much in keeping with Laura's spirit. Um, yeah, and then you know, from there, Laura. Um, you know, there's a, you know, a few months later. You know, COVID hit, and the whole world went kind of crazy. Um, and so, dealing with grief um, and trauma through that. But fortunately, um, you know, this was so. So she she died on January 11th, and uh, we were able to have a, a big celebration of life in Canmore. Um, like Laura was a you know, was a you know quite a strong member of the community and was known by a lot of people. And um, so we were actually able to have a big gathering of, um, of people in Canmore, and it was really, really impactful and a really beautiful ceremony. Um, you know, Laura and I loved live music, and um, some of our, you know, we had some of our favorite bands playing there, and uh, so we were able to, and all of Laura's hockey teammates did this wonderful tribute to her where they, they wrote these things called the Ten Cosmandments. Um, her new, Laura Kozakowski, and she, everybody called her Cos or LK. Um, you know, she just, uh, you know, Laura had this really funny way of, um, it just, I don't know, just sort of, it, I remember I was, I was talking to, to Barry Blanchard, who's a, a well-known climber in, in the Canadian Rockies, and um, he had this, this fond memory of Laura. We were skiing out of an area once, and I'd broken a ski pole, and Barry helped me fix it. And Barry likes to joke that once I fixed the pole, I just took off. But Laura actually took the time to put his, her hand on his arm and was like, thank you, like look him deep in the eyes and just said, thank you. And he's like, you didn't, you just took off skiing. <laughs> and she took the time to, to stay with me. She's like, I really liked her after that. <laughs> I thought you were a bit of a jerk. <laughs> like, yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> uh, but he's since become a, um, a, a strong mentor. And um, you know, luckily in Camor, they, they formed this group called the, the Mountain Muskox, which is a support group for people who suffered uh, loss and trauma in the mountains, you know, much like the the is the grief fund here, mm -hmm. um, the climbing you know, grief fund, the climbing grief fund, yeah, which I think is a really really admirable and wonderful um, initiative. Uh, this is a community based um, support group, um, and you know they're starting to open up chapters around. And uh, I was invited into that, and Kevin, who was with us that day, is one of the founders of it as well. Um, and so. I've, I've leaned really, really heavily on, uh, you know, the community for, for love and support. And um, it's been a really, really hard, challenging ride. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, sharing the story has is, is been a part of my healing journey. And uh, it, it, it helps me. I don't think everybody would necessarily take that path. And it's, it's obviously hard to, to sit here and, and cry and retell the story, um, you know, re-traumatizing yourself a little bit. And there's times I wonder if I don't just do it to like punish myself as well a little bit, but I've run the gamut, um, you know, through the recovery, um, you know, try to try to make sense of things. Um, I remember a few days after the avalanche walking past the, the Bow River in Canmore and, you know, it was really, we went through this really, really deep cold snap, you know, like six weeks of like just horrifically cold weather and just looking at the river and just thinking how much easier it was gonna be if I just jumped. Um, then, you know, I sort of stood there and uh, I, I knew what, I just sort of knew the, the, how hard life was gonna be for, for a long time, for the rest of my life maybe. And, um, but then I, you know, I thought about friends and family and, uh, you know, they'd already been traumatized by this and my, my death, you know, me, me killing myself with that actually, 
it would probably just hurt more. And part of it also is I just, just kind of felt the need to maybe even punish myself by like force myself to live through this. And then also just knowing how mad Laura would be at me if I did that. And so I've tried the best to sort of live my life to get back out into the mountains and still try to find you know, beauty and just try to find a purpose again. Um, it's been really hard. Um, you know, the first couple of years, um, you know, I'm, I'm just into my, just starting my uh, third year since, since the avalanche. Um, you know, there's, you know, the first couple of years it was just in this really deep, just sort of reactive state. Um, I couldn't really, there's not really any hope. There's nothing really to look forward to. It was just surviving. Um, and I spent a lot of time in the mountains. And I, I asked a bunch of friends, I was like, if you guys see me start getting really sketchy out there, doing anything that you think is like reckless kind of reckless um just please tell me and stop me um it, they would have anyway um, but I was, I was quite conscious that you know that it, that was a, a possibility for me and i went through a phase where i was drinking quite a lot and using quite a lot of substances and um and then in uh in october of this year um it all kind of came crashing back down on me a little bit and um, I did try to kill myself. <laughs> I, I basically, like, I had a, a series of life events that, that sort of just culminated in me just walking upstairs and just swallowing every pill on my counter. And it was really, really impulsive and kind of just a reactive state. And I hadn't been going to counseling for quite a while, uh, which in hindsight was a mistake. And uh, But I instantly kind of realized my mistake and ran over to a neighbor's house and banged on their door and they were able to call for help. Um, and I, uh, uh, I, was, I was rushed to hospital and had my stomach pumped and then admitted myself to a psychiatric ward for, um, for, well, for as long as I needed to, but I ended up staying there for 10 days, which was incredibly humbling, um, you know, to, to find yourself in a psychiatric ward. But it was also like, if I, if I keep compromising this sort of recovery process, um, I'm just gonna keep ending up in these situations. And so it, in one regards, it was really, really good because I, you know, I put away all my social media. I put away everything, and I just spent a lot of time working with a psychiatrist. Um, I started taking some um, antidepressant, anti-anxiety meds at the time as well, and um, you know, got back on with my counselor and just spent a lot of time sort of meditating and doing yoga and going for light, light trail runs, um, and then also, you know, being in a place like that where people deal with this on a a lifetime ongoing basis. Um, you know, I also consider myself quite fortunate that in theory, this was gonna be a, a, a passing phase for me uh, or something that I would be able to, to cope with. And a lot of the people that I was surrounded by, um, you know, uh, were dealing with some very, very heavy issues. And so being reminded of that as well was, um, was, was humbling and important as well. Yeah. What were, what were, what are a few lessons that you want to share with um, our community to um, help them process their grief or their trauma or also like objective things that you took away from that specific day of the avalanche where we lost Laura? Like, what can we give um, our community to help minimize future incidents? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, of course you, you replay the day and mistakes that we made on the day. And, um, you know, I, I obviously stepped onto a bit of a convex roll, it was wind-loaded, you know, things that people know uh, not to do. Um, and uh, so Laura, uh, you know, I, I think Laura was in a safe spot in the trees, but I don't think she, she was quite far enough in. Um, and, and also potentially, uh, once again, I'll never know, and I'm not sure how, how important it is to, or how useful it is to, to, to keep going back there, but I think that when the avalanche happened, she might have stepped out as well to see if I was in it. To have eyes on you guys seeing that, yeah. Yeah, potentially, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but once again, I'll never know. This is all just speculative on my part. Um, but the uh, the avalanche went really, really big, and the um, so she probably could have been deeper into this sort of safe spot. Um, you know, we, we had identified all the hazards. We did a lot, a lot right, but you know, once again, when you're in the mountains, backcountry skiing or climbing or anything, you know, like 
it's really, really important to identify hazards and, and to sort of plan for them and prepare for them, but the worst case scenario can still happen. Um, Even with three experts. Exactly, yeah. And uh, it, this was just a casual fun day. It really was. Like it was, you were just out to go ski some powder laps. And uh, what went from a fun day turned into, you know, a day that will be the worst day of my life, like for the rest of my life, um, for sure. And, uh, you know, we, we were well prepared. Like we had, you know, we had all the training and everything. So I, I think those things are incredibly important. Um, you know, we looked at the weather carefully that day and we had identified it and we had everything we needed to. And we did give Laura a chance on the day. You know, we had, um, you know, with our, with the inReach and everything. Um, and unfortunately, the outcome was uh, was the worst possible scenario. And th that can sometimes happen, as you can have the worst possible day. And um, I think, you know, we all kind of theoretically know that the mountains are a dangerous place. And we can kind of conceptually and say that. But I don't know if you ever really, really accept. You know, like, you know you, <laughs> You say you accept it, but I don't like. It's impossible to actually mentally go to what that means in the big picture. Um, and I know I'm sure a lot of people in, in this in this room have dealt with their own share of these sort of incidents and have lost people that are really close to them and um, can know a little bit about about that. And to say, you know, we, we all say that we know these risks, but it's it's a really really different case to actually live it. Like that phone call to Laura's brother was one of the most horrific things I've ever done, and um, just. Thinking about the fact that my recreating has this deep, deep impact on so many people is, um, you know, something that I really, really wrestle with. Um, you know, it impacted the search and rescue people on the day, it impacted the doctors and nursing staff, um, all of Laura's family, me. But at the same time, you know, these these activities also give us a lot of a lot of pleasure, and it gave Laura and I a bond that very few couples get to have together. Um, and some really, really profound memories. And um, so that trade-off in there is one that I, I, I don't know if there's a correct answer or not, but it's definitely, it's one that I, I really struggle to deal with. And then in terms of grief um, and dealing with it, I'm, I'm definitely no grief expert. Um, you know, everybody deals with it in their own way. Um, you know, one thing that, uh, um, you know, for me, I went and got counseling really, really quickly right after, and I think that was really helpful. Um, but it's it's an evolving process, and I think you need to keep up with it. Uh, and I, I kind of got complacent with it after a bit, and that led to me trying to commit suicide um, because like you just didn't give yourself enough time. Yeah, you you evolve with it, and you know, I I also you get kind of. I was just trying to move on with life, and I just wanted to feel normal again. Um, and I and I did. Like I'd had a really fun summer. I left Camor. I was in, I was in Squamish. Uh, the weather was warm. I was out climbing and mountain biking and trail running, just sort of hanging out with friends. And um, you know, I left. I'd left Camor at that point. Um, you know, my home was still set up with all of Laura's stuff in it. Laura, like I don't, I don't really care about the aesthetics of my house. You know, like all the accent walls and stuff like mm -hmm. that. They were all Laura's touches. Um, they weren't mine. Um, and uh, when I came back to Canmore, I hadn't factored in how hard it would be to walk back into that because I'd ignored, um, kind of ignored the, you know, and I'd, I'd put life on pause mm -hmm. for a few months, and it was really nice to do that. Um, but your your demons during that time, my demons, you know, were never they were still there. They were in the basement, just gaining strength on me. <laughs> you know, they were, like, they were they were knocking, wanting me to to pay attention to them. Um, and they just wanted to be expressed, and I wasn't giving them a chance to express themselves. Um, and you know, as as athletes or as you know, mountain people, you know, it, it's really important to to have these emotional outlets, like going and climbing and skiing and doing all this stuff. And I think it's great. It's it's a wonderful way of. Um, you know, processing emotions or not dealing with them as well, which is also fine for a bit. But you need other outlets as well, uh, whether it's writing, going to counseling, getting professional health uh, help, talking to to other people who've gone through trauma and grief, and trying to fit people to relate with. So I think those things are really, really important as well. And I put that stuff on pause, and I put too much weight on the recreating side of it, mm. um, which I, I'd done previously in my life as well. And uh, so I was reminded of the importance of actually getting that professional time, and then. Also, the importance of sitting still on occasion and just actually giving your your emotions time to process and evolve. And um, you, you like as as we would all hope to grow over time, our emotions and our relationship to grief and trauma 
evolve as well. And so I think you need to keep checking in with that um, on an ongoing basis. And I'll probably have to do that for the rest of my life. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Adam. And we just have a couple of minutes left here, and I would love to um, open it up to um, folks here if they have any questions for Adam. No, we, I, was, I was not wearing an avalanche pack, and um, I will be wearing one going forward more often um, in the mountains for sure. Yeah, I was, I was not. And I don't know if it would have made a difference in this situation, but it very well could have for sure. Um, so yes, I, I think avi packs are, especially in that kind of skiing, is, is a very, very good idea. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, any kind of avalanche training um, and professional training is is incredibly worthwhile. I mean, going out and actually doing, getting educated and then getting educated in local snowpacks as well. I mean, what's happening in one mountain region is not what's going to be happening in different mountain regions. And so having, even though we had deep local knowledge in this area, I'm very conscious of that when I go into new terrain. Um, and this was new terrain to us on the day, even though we knew what was happening in other areas um, of, of the Canadian Rockies. I didn't know what was happening in that specific bowl um, on that day. And uh, so I, I think, you know, really giving a place a lot of respect. And I also think we'd kind of maybe gotten a little complacent on the day because we'd skied other lines. Um, you know, I, I may have gotten complacent um, because we hadn't seen a ton of activity. We weren't triggering a lot. But we changed aspects. You know, we just may have curved a little bit. And because we changed aspects, I didn't give that new line each new line is a is a new potential trigger so i think giving a little micro terrain a lot more respect would potentially have been a, a good call on the day but yeah thanks for the question uh yeah <laughs> yeah uh, good question um i uh so i i so i ended up i've, I've left canmore at least for now um canmore was feeling a little bit heavy. Um, there's just a lot of ghosts there t for me. And so I've moved to Squamish. I moved somewhere where I knew that there was, uh, I already had a strong support network and community. And so that's felt really healthy. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the wisdom of leaving sunny Rockies for rainy, drizzy <laughs> Squamish in December <laughs> from my emotional standpoint. But, uh, you know, I wanted to go somewhere where uh, I had a strong support network and had somewhere in Squamish. And uh, um, from there, um, once again, I'm I'm just in a, in a stage now where I'm starting to to have ambition again and to have a little bit of hope for for the future, which I wasn't able to feel for a while. And so it's nice to be in that position. In terms of specific projects, I mean, I'm new to the area, so I'm looking forward to you know warm summer of you know climbing on, on the Chief and maybe doing some paddling and you know some bike packing trips and some mountain running and yeah, just yeah. We just have time for one more question. Yeah, no, I mean, so I, I actually went backcountry skiing uh, five days after the avalanche. Uh, a friend of mine invited me out, and we went to um, what we, you know, considered very mellow terrain. Um, and I wasn't sure how I was going to feel. And uh, I and I was totally fine to go back there and to not be okay with it and to decide I was never going into the mountains again, and that would have been an entirely appropriate response. But fortunately, um, I, I didn't feel that way. And when I was out there, that first ski, I went to an area that Laura and I would ski quite often on sort of higher avalanche um, hazard days. And I just sort of felt her presence. And I just really enjoyed sort of being with her and sharing moments with her there. And I, I've actually gone back to the avalanche site uh, a few times as well. I went back later that summer to go and get her skis and a bunch of her, her equipment. And it was, it was really, really impactful to go back to this place that at one point, you know, in January was this really cold, harsh place of death to go back there in the summer when there, it was, it was alive, it was green, it was warm, there's beautiful alpine flowers and uh, to be able to sit in that space and sort of reclaim it um, was, was really wonderful. 
I mean, on the one year anniversary of her, her death, I, I went back in winter as well and spread some of her ashes there and had a little ceremony with some friends. And um, I've, I've taken her ashes back to a, a number of peaks that we climbed and areas we climbed and spread them there. And so, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in the backcountry a lot still, actually. Yeah, and I still, uh, fortunately for me, it feeds my soul. Um, and my relationship, you know, there's definitely times when I'm scared and I, I've gone out and I, I just haven't felt it on that day and I've turned around a lot, but, um, and I, you know, I give snow slopes a lot of respect. Um, not, not that I didn't before, but even, even more so now. And I definitely feel myself getting antsy when I'm out there for sure. Yeah, a little bit cautious, really encourage dialogue amongst all of my, um, my partners as well. Just constantly talking about what we're seeing, what we're assessing and trying not to let that complacency ever settle in, but, and still enjoying it at the same time. Like, you know, I think it's also important if you're out there, enjoy it as well. And it's okay to enjoy it. I remember the first time laughing after Laura died and feeling really conflicted about whether it's okay to laugh and feel joy. And I was like, well, no, it, it is. I mean, this is kind of the point. It's kind of the point of life. And Laura was a really joyous, happy person. And um, so it, giving myself permission to laugh again was, was really powerful. Thanks to Adam for sharing such a deeply moving story. And rest in peace, Laura. You are still and will always be a beacon of love, light, and adventure. Thank you to Rocky Talkie, Sterling Rope, and the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. Stay tuned on the Sharp End social media to find out how you can win a Sterling Rope. Did you know that the American Alpine Club has their own podcast now? You can now take a deep dive into your favorite American Alpine Club content via your headphones and car stereo. Your climb to work or your favorite hangboard routine just got way more interesting. Find the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Please help me get these stories told. This podcast takes time to create and money to produce. You can show your gratitude by financially backing this podcast on Patreon or PayPal. A little goes a long way. You can donate $1, $5, $10, or more a month. Thank you so, so much to all the listeners that are already Patreon supporters. I literally could not produce this show without you. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.